Tanda ubingi lilibanda. Kamala nkosun feliwe tu chesu. Amen. Tanda ukala kuti congratulations. Halalisele. Uplessings olu angjelu kuti as few as you are, you have bought a church. Amen. I think if you want to find out the level of seriousness of any individual in the church, is how they treat God's place. Abakuk says, Nihelikash, But you let my house to be desolate. That's what Habakkuk says. So how is it that you come into my house, which is desolate, and you go to your nice houses there? So I'm very grateful that you took the book of Habakkuk very seriously. I will not come down because I am busy. I'm doing a great work. But I'm doing a great work. And I'm so happy that this church has said we will not come down because we're doing a great work for the Lord. And so for that reason, thank you so much for buying the house of the Lord. I pray that the house becomes bigger and bigger and God adds into it on a daily basis. Amen. We're going to start now our discourse. And so I was like, Twelve o'clock. And I love it, the fact that there's such a free spirit within the church because sometimes the church is busy about time more than the content of the program. Yeah. And, and, and the content of the program is not put into context. So therefore, thank you so much. But No, I'm your typical, very medium-sized preacher. Thank you so much. The theme for our discourse today is a disappointing God. That's the theme for our discourse. I took the liberty to find out why people come to church. Why church is so important in the life of people. Why church is so influential. Why a greater number of the population subscribes to going to church. So I took the liberty to understand why people are interested in gathering. And you can see that today we have gathered, others are gathered everywhere. So there's gatherings, and all of them are said, we are a church. And so why do people come to church? I found out that reason number one why people come to church is because people want to worship. So the reason why people come to church, number one, the major reason is worship. Now, we can interpret what to worship in any way. But people, inside their hearts, there is a longing and a desire to want to worship a power greater than themselves. So the human being is embedded, and, and I read this from, 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 from a scientific point of view, uh, the, the, the magazine is called Time Magazine. The title for that year was written The God Gene. G-E-N-E. Now the scientists were arguing there is inside us a desire coded by our maker 
that we must desire to worship. That we must want to worship a power mighty and greater than ourselves. It's a scientific concept. We can interpret it different about Konzai. But each one of us, inside of us, is a desire to worship. Uh, when you read the book uh, 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 Desire of Ages, just at the beginning, just Desire of Ages, Ellen White stems it out at in the hearts of all mankind, of whatever race or station in life. There is an inexpressible longing for something that they do not now possess. She says this longing is implanted in the very constitution of men by a merciful God. That men may not be satisfied with his present conditions or attainments, whether good or bad or better. God desires that humans shall seek the best and find it to the eternal blessing of their souls. So reason number one for worship, for, for coming to church, is to worship. Reason number two that I found was most prominent why people come to church is because people need help. Hey, Bazara. People need help. And so, if you go to the introduction of the book, the Bible, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, God does not introduce himself as he does not do that. He is. He he does. He, he does not. Uh, he does not uh, uh, come down to to observing protocols. God says in the beginning. So in other words, he presupposes that we should know that there's a God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So Genesis chapter one verse one gives the mind to the human being that there is one who is capable of creating the place that I find myself in. So God created the heavens and the earth, and so therefore the assumption is that He's powerful. And then in his manifesto, when God gives his manifesto, he brings the idea that, listen, in, in, in Jeremiah chapter 32 verse 7, it says, there is nothing that is too hard for the Lord. So when he brings his manifesto, his introductory statements to the human race, he says, look at me, I can do anything. So in the book of Luke, in 1 verse 37, it says, there is nothing impossible with God. What is impossible with men is very much possible with God. So God introduces himself to the human race and says, if you need help, here's a creator. If you need healing, here's a healer. If you need this, this is what I am. I am who I am. And so therefore the human race assumes that above them, the one that they worship can help them. So reason number two why people come to church because people want help. And that help could be anything. could be spiritual help. Church is powerful and popular. Because people come to church sometimes even for financial help. God has said to us, listen, give your tithes and offerings and test me. Test me to see if I'm not capable of opening the windows of heaven. Such that you have blessings that you cannot even contain. He says, good measure. It's pressed down and it's shaken together and it's running over. So the assumption, therefore, from the one that did the Bible is that he can help me financially. It's powerful. He can help me financially. And he says, I can heal you. There's a healer amongst us. The Bible is awash in the Gospels in the book of Matthew, John, Luke, and Mark. is awash with the healer. The Bible says they would bring many unto him because the deaf would end up hearing 
The blind would see. The lame would walk. Here is the healer. So the assumption from one who reads the Bible is that I need help. I need healing. Here is the healer. So reason number two why we come to church for help. Emotionally. He says in the book of Psalms, chapter 34, verse 18, for the Lord is near to them that are of a broken heart. To them that are of a broken spirit, God is near. So he or she who comes into this building with a broken spirit and a contrite heart, God is there. He has said it in the Bible. And so we come to church for help. Funny enough, well, we come to church sometimes for social reasons. Apparently, church people are marriage material. So people come to church sometimes to find the best of the best. And so therefore, therefore, the reason is help. Help me on a social aspect. That's why people come to church. But what happens when they come to church and all these things don't happen? What happens when the sick come to church and there's no healing? When the financially distraught come to church and there's no financial help. When the emotionally disturbed come to church and there's no emotional help. What happens to that? So I want us to get to our theme verse now. Luke chapter 7 verse 18 and 19. Luke chapter 7 verse 18. That's what our discourse will be based on. The book of Luke chapter 7 verse 18 and 19 brings the idea of John the Baptist. And I'm reading in your hearing. It says on, on Luke chapter... Luke chapter 7, verse 18 and 19. And the disciples of John showed him all these things. Verse 18. Verse 19. And calling unto him two of his disciples, sent them to Jesus, saying, Art thou he that should come, or we should look for another? Now, let me give a brief context of where this is coming from. The book of Matthew chapter 11, verse 11. Jesus comes through and certifies the idea that John the Baptist is the greatest prophet of them all. We have seen great prophets in the Old Testament. We talk about Daniel. We talk about Jeremiah. We talk about Ezekiel. But Jesus says, you've seen them all, but none born of a woman is greater than the man John the Baptist. So Jesus says, you've seen them all, but this one, the one that heralded my coming, the one who laid the red carpet for me, there's none that is greater than him. So Matthew chapter 11, verse 11, we now know how Jesus feels and thinks about John the Baptist. There's none like him, born of a woman, who is greater than that. You see, John the Baptist was a peculiar, he was no ordinary man. We live in a planet where there are ordinary men, then there's men like John the Baptist. John the Baptist was no ordinary man. He went into the palace and told Herod straight up that into enzyme. So he was very straight up to say to him, You and Herodias, your Herodias, your brother's wife, Herodias, your brother's wife, what you are doing, this iniquitous alliance of yours is wrong. Went into the palace. He reproved sin for what it is. John the Baptist was fearless, wasn't afraid. He called sin by its rightful name. And I want to subscribe to the church that sometimes what we need as a church is men who will stand for the good and for the right though the heavens may fall. Men who will call sin for what sin is and not be afraid to rebuke where rebuke should come. John was such a man. If you read the book of of Desire of Ages, it says Herod was afraid of John. Hey, this is a monarch. 
This is the king in the palace, afraid of the preacher men out there in the wilderness. So he was afraid of John because John was straight up with him and reproved him when reproof was needed. So John was no ordinary man. But here we are, we find him in the book of Luke chapter 7, verse 18 and 19. The setting is different. He is in jail, incarcerated. John the Baptist is there in jail in the dungeon. And now his mission work, his objectives to life come in at that moment. He asks himself questions about his mission. The part what I was doing, was it real? Was it necessary? What was the end of what I was doing? Therefore, he sends the disciples and says, go and ask him, the one that I was preaching about, if he is the one or we should look for another one. Now, this must have been confusing. Could it be that the long-hoped deliverer had not yet appeared? John the Baptist asked himself, then what meant the message that was given unto him? John was bitterly disappointed in his result of his mission. You see, when John the Baptist preached, his idea was that he thought that his preaching would arise the nation of Israel to a point that it was now similar to the arising of the nation of Israel when Ezra and Nehemiah prayed. He thought there was going to be a great revival amongst the people. He thought that Jesus would take his kingly authority like all the Israelites thought, that now that the one who was to come has come, he's going to take over the Roman Empire, but Jesus contented himself with sitting with sinners. He never made no claim to kingly authority. He never once made any political statement about wanting to be part of a political reign. He contented himself with sitting with little children. And John, in the dungeon of dungeon, asked himself the question, is he the one? Or we should look for another. Now, this is very interesting because John expected God or Jesus to, ex to, to act differently. But the reality of the situation was very different. And this is where the problem starts. When our expectations of what God should do for us is divorced from our reality of what he actually does. So I'm expecting him to rise by fire. The God of fire to rise, but this God of fire is content with just sitting silent. So therefore, I should ask him the question, are you the one that you said you can do everything? Are you the one that said you can power? Are you the creator that you said you can create? Or there's someone else who's coming after you. You are not him. Because your behavior is not in line with what you say. So therefore, John is languishing in prison. Now, what's interesting is, is what Jesus says of him in Matthew chapter 11, verse 11 again. He says there's none greater than John the Baptist. Now, the Bible records in this whole scenario that Jesus never even one day went to visit John the Baptist in prison. Now, I think you, you must understand, everyone can love you when things are going right. It's easy. It's easy to love someone when things are going right. But few people come to your rescue at your weakest of moments. And so we would expect that if this Jesus was a friend to John, then the least you could do is to visit him. Because his disciples visited John the Baptist, but Jesus didn't. No one, there's no record of him ever going to jail to sign, to sign on the letter that Jesus is signing here. I'm here to see John the Baptist. Jesus never, even one day, went to see John the Baptist. And the Bible records that John the Baptist died with no visit from Jesus. A disappointing God that sometimes we say. 
who does things out of the ordinary. So when things go terribly in our lives, nothing seems to go right, we ask ourselves, should he or is he the one or we should expect another? Sometimes when, when we are qualified and educated and we have no jobs, the question comes into our mind, are you the one or we should expect another? Sometimes when we are struck by sicknesses that we don't understand, after eating healthy for a very long time, drinking our water as we are told right here from the pulpit, eating meat when we shouldn't be eating meat, doing this and that, and trying our best, exercising, doing all of this, after doing all those things and we get sick, we ask ourselves a question, why? And those that indulge in all forms of unhealthy habits move stronger in life. And we ask ourselves the question, Why? Why is it that when I do what is right, I get all the wrong things happening to me? When we try businesses, business ideas, and we try to be legit, we try to be honest, we go by the book. We do the right thing. When they say register the company, we register the company. When they say they want a quotation, we bring them a quotation. Fair to the market trends. And when we do all of that, we get no contracts, no jobs are coming to us, and our businesses crash. Why is it that when we do the right things, wrong things happen to us? Is he the one? Or should we expect another? When our loved ones suddenly die. Uh, when our loved ones die at the moments we thought that they should be alive. When death strikes us, at our weakest of point. Is he the one? Why is he watching all of this and letting all of this happen right here when I come and pray? When we pray and fast for those that we want to live, but they don't live. Why? When our marriages crumble right in front of us despite our best effort. And we try. We try to be the Christian woman that wakes up every day and prays for the men on the bed. We try to be the Christian mother that prays for the children that go out and smoke. We try to be the Christian husband that prays for his son who despises his instruction. And all this is done and yet everything crumbles right in front of us. When our families turn against us because of our religion, we wonder where is God when it hurts the most? So human beings in their deepest of despair and acute disappointments, wonder, are you the one? Or, oh, we should expect another. Now, I love the answer to Jesus. See, the disciples of John approached Jesus. Now, the Bible records that uh, Jesus was healing. The people were coming to him. He was healing them over and over again. They asked him a question in the morning. Read the book of Desire of Ages. They asked him the question in the morning. Jesus doesn't answer. Keeps quiet. Keeps doing his job. Let the, those who are sick come. Let those that are ill come. Let those are, they all came unto him. Later in the evening when he's done with his job, he says to, him, says to them in the book of Matthew chapter 11, go and tell John what you have seen. He says, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. You see, the idea from, from the answer of Jesus is that his word alone is enough to answer the question, are you the one or we should expect another? You see, Jesus says to him, go and tell John that the message that he was preaching is true to the point and I am the one. Tell him what you saw today. Tell him that the land, the, those that are lame, they walk. 
Turn up the deaf, they hear, and the blind, they see. Tell John that, listen, he did not preach in vain, that the gospel that he was preaching of the Savior that was going to come is as true as it is. I am who I am. Tell John that in my silence, I'm still God. Yeah. That my God, being a God, is not based on whether I do something for you or I don't. Mm. Nothing of me as a God diminishes when I don't do anything for you. God says, listen, you need to understand that you cannot judge me by what I do or don't do. Ask Moses, he will tell you that my name is I am who I am. Now, that's, that's English on, on the wrong side of English because that doesn't make sense. I am who I am. God breaks all protocols of speaking and prepositions and pronouns and adjectives and says, I am who I am. I decide to do what I am because I am God. But be assured that the lamb are walking. That your message can never be in vain. Tell John that the same man he proclaimed is the son of God that taketh away the sins of the world is him. Tell him I am the one and he should look for no one else. I am here. So the word of God alone. You see, tell John that God can choose to answer by fire or by silence. You see, he is so powerful that even when he answers, he can answer even by silence. That we don't need to question what he does. Because he's a powerful God. Tell him that my silence does not mean my absence. That when I keep quiet when things are going through and you lose your loved one and you go and bury them, tell them that my silence does not mean I'm absent. That when you are in pain, I'm right next to you, quiet, listening to you because it's to the glory of God all of this. Tell him that my love for him is unquenchable. But you can't understand how much I love you, John the Baptist. Tell him that I am God even if I do nothing. You see, to John was opened the truth that had come to Elijah. You see, Elijah one time, when he was right there in the desert, there was the sound of a great wind. Then after that, there was a sound of an earthquake. Then after that, there was a small, still voice. And that voice was the voice. So after the Bible says, you see, there was that when the sound of the great wind came through, the Bible says God was not in that great wind. And Elijah expected a massive whirlwind to come through, but that massive whirlwind came, but God wasn't in it. The, the mountains broke into pieces, but God wasn't in it. But when the last part, the unexpected happened, when God does what God does, small, still voice, and God spoke to Elijah. In that small, still voice. You see, John died and his death was a terrible one. A young lady dances in front of his father. The father is so drunk and says, what do you want, my daughter? Her name was, uh, remind me of the name. Salom, yes. Salom was the name. Now, if you read the book, you say Salom was beautiful. And it's a voluptuous figure. That's what Ellen White says, not me. A voluptuous figure. She was on fire. A typical African woman. That's what Salom was. Salom danced in front of her father, a drunk man. And in his drunkenness, he pronounces and says, What do you want? I will give you even half of my kingdom. And the cunning mother, Herodias, whispers a sound to her daughter and says, tell him I want the head of John the Baptist. Of all the things that that woman could ask for, she asked for the head of John the Baptist. Herod was taken aback. Are you sure about this request? 
And the Bible records that John the Baptist was beheaded and his head was brought onto a plate to show proof of payment. This is him. He is dead. And in all of that, John the man died a man full of faith because he understood that God can do so much in his nothingness. That he does not need to act according to how we think he should act. And I want to subscribe to the church that sometimes we expect things to happen and when those things don't happen, we lose our faith. That our faith must never be held or must never be subscribing to what God does for us. Uh, when things are going right, we sing loudest of voices. When the money is in the bank account, sing loudest of voices. When, 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 when the food is there at the home, loudest of voices. When our children are getting married to proper SDA young men, we sing loudest of voices. When they don't get pregnant out of wedlock, we sing loudest of voices. But when things go south, then we question him. Then we ask about his presence. Where have you been all this time? When we lose our loved ones, we ask him, why me? And God says, who else do you think I should have picked? Who else do you think I should have picked? Uh, you see, God will bring us back to the context of the cross. You ask me, why me? Then I will ask you, why my son? Did you understand that when my son was hanging on the cross, he called unto me and says, Father, why have you forsaken me? If you read the, read the book of Desire of Ages, not even the Bible itself, it says, it says when, God, when Jesus was hanging on the cross, even earth, even earth bowed down. The sun refused to shine. It was three in the afternoon. And darkness engulfed that whole situation. Even earth could not look at this maker dying on the cross. And Jesus says, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? And then, you see, you must have understood that there was a Sunday that was coming. Because God was allowing his son to go through the pain of this whole process of dying, knowing that he was going to overcome it. And sometimes I want to subscribe to the church that God allows us to go through what we go through because he knows that the Sunday, when it's coming, we are going to conquer the thing that killed us on a Friday. He allows it because he knows that we are to his glory. I'm reminded of the three Hebrew boys. These three Hebrew boys were powerful. Daniel chapter 3 verse 16 to 18. They replied the king, Nebuchadnezzar. Babylon was the greatest empire of that time. None was bigger than itself. And you had a pompous king. His name, King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, they were caught up in a moment to say, listen, this is the time to either deny your faith or you die. And these three young men give one of the most powerful replies to a monarch. They say, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. Now, these three young men were suggesting to the king that, listen, we've already decided what we're going to do. There's no amount of you threatening us with the fire that will make us change our minds. So this whole process of you going through the process of interviewing us about whether we're going to worship him or not is not going to help. We've already decided in our hearts, so therefore, we're not careful to answer you in this matter. But we want you to know that our God is capable of delivering us. Comma. Now, these boys wanted, to understand, wanted the king to understand, listen, we serve one capable of destroying you by the blink of his eye. You think you're a king because you're a king. You are a king because he left you to be a king. The blink of his eye will obliterate you from earth. We serve one who is powerful. So they say to the king, we are not careful. The decision to praise him is already made in our hearts. It's stuck up here. We are not going to move. Comma. He will deliver us from the fire. But 
<laughs> this boys knew it. He said, listen, he will deliver us from the fire. But if he does not deliver us from the fire, we want you to know that he is able to deliver us from this fire, but he's also able to look at us while we burn and become charcoal and we die. We want you to know on this earth that this day we will not worship whether he delivers us or he doesn't. These young men knew that God can and God can choose not to. And our worship of him has never been based on whether he has delivered us from the fire. Even if he watches us burn, we will worship him. There's a man called Job in the Bible. The introduction is a lovely one. In the land of Uz, there was a man named Job. This man walked righteously. He eschewed evil. That's what the Bible says. That's the beginning of chapter 1, verse 1 of the book of Job. Now go to chapter 1. Same chapter. That's 31, towards the end there. The story has changed in ways that humans can't understand. None of us has lost all their children in one day. None of us has lost all his wealth and his children in one day. None of us has gotten a bonus for losing your children, for losing your wealth in one day, and get sick after that. You must understand, the, the, the story of the man Job looks unreal. How is it that God can sit there on the front row seat of Job's life and watch him go through what he goes through? And Job says, though he may slay me. In Job chapter 13 verse 15. says, Job understands that, listen, listen, my life preserved or not preserved is in the hand of God. Whether he chooses that I lose all my children right now, whether he chooses that I lose all my wealth, whether he chooses that I go sick, my life is in God's hand and though he slay me, you don't understand what this verse is saying. Job says, says, listen, even if he gives me boils, the Bible says Job would have to scratch himself not with his hands but with rocks. That's how bad his balls were, with rocks. He says, though he makes me go through that, though the whole world may look at me as a man who is crazy for worshipping him, I want you to know that though he may slay me, yet I will trust in him. He says, but I will maintain my own ways before him. In other words, the NLT version says, God might kill me. I love this NLT version. It says, God might kill me, but I have no other hope. I'm going to argue my case with him. This is a man who's desperate. He says, listen, in my desperation, I love you. Whether you kill me or choose not to kill me, I am with you. I will go through what I go through, whatever the case could be, but I know that you love me. So though you may kill me, yet I will have no other hope but in you. See, finally, when you read the book of John, chapter 6, verse 66 to 68, there's, there's Peter, the obvious character. Now, the question is asked, and you know Peter, now, he says, so the, the context of John chapter 6, verse 66 to 68, Jesus had just preached. Prior to that, I think two or three chapters before, he had preached to about 5,000 people and he had fed them. They loved him. Everybody loves someone who can give you food. He had fed them. They loved him. Ha! Here's the food guy. He's here. Ready with the food. He fed them. They came to him in chapter 6 looking for food. But this time it did not feed them. They kept quiet. And from there on, he told them the truth about their lives and why they came to him. And after telling that, he turns back to his disciples because everybody else was leaving. Then he says, from that time on, in John chapter 6, verse 68 to 68, from that time on, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, looked back at his twelve and says, will you also go away? You've seen them leave because suddenly today I didn't give them bread. 
You've seen them leave because we're starting to die. I didn't take care of them as they expected me to. You've seen them leave because they expected food, but I gave them the word. You've seen them leave. So I want to ask you a question. Will you also go away? You've seen them lose their loved ones and turn their backs on me. You've seen them lose their jobs and go crazy in their mind and curse me. You have seen them lose their marriages and lose their faith in the process. You've seen them lose their jobs, their, their careers, their lives, their sanity because of what they were going through and they've walked away. The question I want to ask you, you 12 who are remaining, will you also go away? And that's a question that each one of us must ask themselves before the times of travel come. Because they will come and you need to ask yourself, will you also go away? In the seasons of dryness, in the seasons of God's silence, in the seasons when God looks like he's absent, will you also go away? Peter, the obvious character, comes up with a powerful reply, says, Lord, to whom shall we go to? Thou hast the words of eternal life. So in the book of John chapter 6, verse 68, Peter says, Lord, listen, we want you to know and we're not going away. Because to whom can we go? Peter suggests that in comparison to everything out there that we would go to, there is none but you. Peter suggests, listen, we have tried to do a cost-benefit analysis of the things out there. We have found out that there is none better than you. So the, the answer to your question, will we go away, is to whom? Even if we wanted to go, where would you go to? Peter saying, even if you wanted to leave this place and go, where? Because there is none better than you. Peter suggests and says, you have the words of eternal life. Let me, tell you, let me say to us that the reality of Christianity sometimes may be darker than we can understand. We may pray that we get married and be happy and have children and have a life, a normal life. And none of that will ever happen. We may die childless. After attempt on attempt, and God may close that womb forever. He's capable. We may pray for the sick to be healed. We may sincerely fast for our mothers and our children, and yet they may never come back home. Uh, we may we may pray for, for that job or that scholarship or that business idea to come through and God will make you remain in your financial position forever. I want to suggest to the church that we must get to a point where our faith is bigger than what we see. That our faith must supersede what we go through. That our faith cannot be predetermined by what we're going through and what, we should be what should be happening to us. We must come to a point of realization that it is God who can close doors for us and it's okay. And it's okay as long as God closed, God knows. As long as God says no to it, God knows. If the time has come for him to shut, to shut those doors, to make sure that nothing goes in or nothing goes out, it is okay. As long as God has said it, it is okay. Because to whom else can we go to here? We are desperate for salvation. Where else can we get it? There is no other God who has done like what our God has done. None of the gods has hung on the cross for any of their subjects. Ours has. And he has demonstrated that, listen, I am a God who can do anything for you. And truly, there is none like him. So, 
God will disappoint you. His tendencies of disappointing are big. Part of his character is disappointing humans. But in that disappointment is embedded love and care. There's so many doors that have shut for you that if they had opened for you, you would not see salvation. There's so many things that you wanted but will never get. Because if you had gotten them, you'd have turned your back on God. It is in his mercy that he has closed doors for us. It is mercy to a dying world that God shuts certain things from our sight and says, here you go and no further. So I want us to, ch- to pray. I want us to think about our lives and, and accept a disappointing God. Not just accept him, but praise him sincerely. Praise him for disappointing us. Praise him for closing what he has closed. Praise him for not blessing us the way we expected him to bless us. We must get to a point where the same way we praise him when he has given us the money and the jobs and the, and the family, we praise him when he has given us none of those things. And now if you read the book of Job chapter 1, the last verse, it says, in all of these things, Job never sinned. In all of these things, Job never looked at God and blamed him. In all of these things, Job never did anything out of the ordinary. And he says, God has given and God has taken. Praise be to his name. And I want us to subscribe to that and, and, and think about it. How our lives are detected by what happens. How our faith goes through highs and lows depending on what is happening or not happening. May God save us. May God help us. May God help the one who was ready to let go because God is disappointing. May God help you to understand that in his disappointment is love you can never understand. I want us to pray right now. May we close our eyes and pray. Father in heaven, we want to thank you for disappointing us. We want to appreciate the doors that you have closed. Thank you so much. Because we want to walk with you not based on what you are doing for us, but on who you are. We want to love you sincerely without looking for any reward whatsoever. Lord, thank you so much because when you are for us, the question is who can be against us? Lord, thank you so much because we are convinced that neither heaven nor earth, nor principalities, nor powers that be, nor death, nor life, no hunger, no loss of jobs or loss of loved ones. Whatever the case, we're convinced that nothing on earth or heaven can separate us from the love of God. I pray for the church. I pray for myself. I pray that our faith as a church may hold strong. That individuals go back to our places of residence and go through the things that we go through, that we may hold on to the anchor. That everything that you've closed, we may look at it as a blessing and a blessing indeed. Help us, Father, to accept, to praise, to worship sincerely for what you have done and what you will never do. Thank you in Jesus' name. Let everybody say amen. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Amen.